I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the Federalist Society's National Convention, the DACA oral argument, and we have an interview with law professor Josh Blackman about his new book, 100 Cases Everyone Should Know. So this week, the Federalist Society had its annual gala for 2,300 of our closest friends here in Washington. Justice Kavanaugh was the the keynote speaker. Tiffany and I both got dressed up and we went to the dinner. And you can see a picture of us if you follow us on Instagram. Let's go to 101. Yes, we have a new Instagram account. So uh, follow us for hopefully pictures with judges. <laughs> but there were a number of protesters that showed up, as you might expect. There were the ladies dressed like the handmaidens. And uh, I saw somebody on Twitter tweeted, oh, I hate it when when I show up and other people are wearing the same thing as me. <laughs> they were pretty, pretty funny. I I saw um, someone had also dressed up as staff, and they handed out these fake programs. So the Federal Society used to have these pretty elaborate programs for the gala, you know, where everyone is seated. But they they ditched those um, several years ago, and it's all electronic. So if you're you're in the know and you've been to these, you know, you knew that it was fake, and it was like, you know, it had a bunch of horrible stuff about uh, Justice Kavanaugh, but. I thought it was just a funny thing. They also had Christine Blasey Ford's testimony on this huge video screen outside of Union Station, you know, trying to be as obnoxious as they could. And some protesters also got in. I liked uh, to the dinner itself. So they would have had to pay to go to the dinner. And it's not cheap. No, it's not cheap. A couple hundred dollars. uh, Wait through a three-hour dinner. Three-hour dinner. In order to stand up and um, blow their rape whistles when uh, Justice Kavanaugh started speaking. But I loved the the crowd's response when this happened. There was just a little cluster of them. We all stood up and just started clapping for Justice Kavanaugh. And so no one could really hear what the protesters were saying. And they were uh, quickly removed. And um, Justice Kavanaugh could get on with his speech. And it was... It was a really, it was a really great speech. Uh, he said at the outset, the theme tonight is gratitude, and he went on to talk about how he intends to spend the rest of his life thanking his friends for lifting him up during what was such a hard time, and many of them putting their reputations on the line uh, to defend him. And you know, he talked about how uh, Don McGahn, who was White House counsel at the time, would would send him clips from the the movie Miracle about the 1980 <laughs> hockey team, and uh, you know he would call him Coach McGahn. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was very gracious, and you know he is not bitter um, after having gone through everything that he went through, and I think that was just a testament to who he is as a person and how he's um, going to tough it out. Yeah, and he talked about um, you know how amazed he was by the the strength he saw from his wife, Ashley. And he said that the, the confirmation process tested him, but he never felt alone. And, um, you know, he found inspiration in unexpected places. And uh, so he saw, he, he said he tries to live on the sun sunrise side of the mountain. And I think that definitely came through in his speech. And his speech was also pretty funny. He had some, he had some good jokes. Um, and he also told us that um, starting in a few weeks, pizza will be available in the Supreme Court cafeteria. 
because, um, you know, the junior justice is responsible for <laughs> um, certain tasks on the cafeteria committee. So that will be his contribution. He said his legacy is secure now. <laughs> yes. Um, I thought he also told a story about Justice Kagan that I thought was funny. So Justice Kagan thinks that Justice Kavanaugh's biggest impact on the court has been increasing um, the increasing number of sports analysis since uh Judge Kavanaugh is obsessed with baseball. And she said also, like, this replaced Anthony Kennedy's um, Shakespeare analysis. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh said, you know, what can I say? To thine own self be true. Um, it was it was cute. And he also had uh, some, some great lines about uh, Justice Gorsuch working with him once again because they had clerked together so many years ago. And he said that um, after he arrived at the court, uh, Justice Gorsuch and his wife organized the sort of traditional welcome dinner. And he arranged to have the racing presidents from the Nationals yes. uh, baseball team uh, come to that dinner because Justice Kavanaugh is a, is a big baseball fan. He also uh, shared that after— after the court issued the first uh, majority opinion that Justice Kavanaugh wrote for the court, he got a note in the mail from um, his and, and Justice Gorsuch's former boss, Justice Kennedy, saying, you know, you did a great job, and I like this better than Neil's first opinion, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. A little sort of like a little bit of sibling rivalry between the two. Yeah, it was great. All right. Well, moving on to what's happening, uh, what's been happening at the Supreme Court this week. Um, the justices heard oral argument in a handful of cases. The the biggest, of course, was the consolidated cases involving uh, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And it was a packed house at the Supreme Court. Uh, I did not even bother going over. Uh, it was so cold. I didn't want to stand in line and uh, for, for a long time. And uh, potentially not even get in. I know. I was watching on Twitter and Josh Blackman said he got there at like 3, 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, and he didn't didn't get in, right? He only got in the lawyer's lounge. Yeah. The first ticket. Yeah. So it, it is lucky if you are a lawyer and a member of the Supreme Court bar that even if you can't get one of the, the few prized seats in the courtroom, you can go to the overflow room, which honestly, that's where I prefer to be because you've got comfy chairs, there's a bathroom, um, you can kind of, you know, mix and mingle a little bit before the argument with, with the other lawyers in the lounge. Um, yeah, I don't think any argument's worth worth it to me getting there at 3 a.m. Yeah, no. definitely not. Uh, so turning to the to the actual argument, so uh, the, the lawyers arguing it, there was um, Solicitor General Noel Francisco representing the Trump administration. And, and the issue here is whether the administration can roll back the DACA program uh, in the method that it, that it did. Uh, and everybody agrees, uh, the, the lawyers on the other side, um, Ted Olson and uh, the Solicitor General for the state of California, whose name is escaping me right now, um, they everybody agrees that the administration can roll back the deferred action uh, for childhood arrivals program, which President Obama, um, the Obama administration unilaterally implemented. Uh, but the the argument is really over whether the Trump administration um, had given sufficient reasons in in a memorandum that was issued at the time that the decision was made. So really, the the big issue is whether it's reasonable for a president to abandon and. Argu arguably unlawful program put in place by a predecessor. Uh, 
it's it's not about the merits of DACA, which you know really should be debated in Congress and not uh, at at the Supreme Court. And the United States's position is that this case isn't even reviewable, right? Because um, you know, I was reading reading the transcript, and right away, Noel Francisco gave this um, example on the reviewability question. He said, if the attorney general were to say that he wasn't going to seek death penalty prosecutions because he thought the death penalty was unconstitutional, that would be immune from judicial review. And if a new attorney general came in and reversed that policy because he believed that the death penalty was constitutional, uh, that would likewise be immune from judicial review. Yeah, and uh, Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch both asked hypotheticals along those lines about the Obama administration making the judgment that they weren't going to prosecute, basically weren't going to prosecute marijuana cases at the federal level because there are states that have now um, are decriminalizing and, and legalizing uh, marijuana. And so, you know, Alito asked if if the administration reversed that position, a later administration, would, would that be reviewable? Um, and uh, the lawyer didn't want to say that it, uh, the lawyer for the other side didn't want to say that it, that it would be. So I think this is likely to be one of those cases um, that, you know, we we may not see a ruling until the very end of the term, um, you know, sometime in, in June, if I had to guess, as we tend to see with uh, the hottest of hot button issues. Uh, but moving on, I recently spoke with Josh Blackman. Josh Blackman is a law professor at the South Texas College of Law, Houston. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Thank you so much for having me back. So, Josh, you and Randy Barnett have a new book out. It's called An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. So tell me about the book and how you came up with the idea. The book came around backwards. Um, Randy and I are co-authors on a con law casebook. This is a 2,000-page Bible-length tome that, that seemingly covers all the cases that people may study in con law. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I suggested to Randy that we make a series of videos for some of the bigger cases in our book. Initially, we made videos for about eight cases. Then maybe we had 50 cases. Then we decided <laughs> to expand it. And then by the time we were done, we had roughly 100 cases. And then we had the idea that maybe we should do something else. Maybe we should turn the scripts for our videos into book chapters. And uh, Randy and I were very ambitious. This was a lot of work. And this video project bled into the book, which now comes with the videos attached to them. We have this now this very ambitious product, 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know, with an entire interactive multimedia library that comes with it. This is a, a labor of love, and uh, we're so proud it's out now. So as you mentioned, there's a multimedia component with audio from Supreme Court arguments, photos, maps, videos of, of you and, and Randy talking about the cases. So I imagine you uncovered some things you didn't know about the Supreme Court while you were working on the project. Tell me about some of that. Oh, there's so much good stories. I could tell you so many good stories. One of my favorite stories involves a caroling products company. Now, everyone knows or you should know at least, <laughs> about footnote four of U.S. v. Caroline products. But most people don't even bother studying the facts of the case. The case involved what's called filled milk, which is basically condensed milk. And the idea was you could put milk in a can without refrigeration. This product posed a threat to dairy farmers who didn't like having any sort of competition. <laughs> As a result, both states and federal governments banned the shipment of filled milk. Now, everyone knows perhaps that much. What you probably don't know is that there was two Caroline product cases. 
after the first Caroline product case was decided, the owner of the company decided to challenge the law again. And the family story is that he actually drove a milk truck across state lines to get arrested. I don't think he actually drove it, but I think he was on the truck. <laughs> and the funnier part is this. His lawyer told him, don't worry. You won't get arrested. They'll never arrest you. But the judge apparently was a, was a tight guy. He actually arrested him. The marshal did not want to put him in prison, so he kept him in his house as a dinner guest for the evening. <laughs> but eventually, his case was appealed to the Supreme Court a second time. His name was Charles Hauser. This part's great. The Supreme Court upheld his conviction a second time. They said, no, 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 Congress can ban the shipment of filled milk. But here's the part no one knows about. After his conviction was upheld, his lawyers requested a pardon from Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt pardoned the guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the pardon was issued, I think, about a month before Roosevelt died. And this was one of the last pardons FDR issued. So this thorn in his side who had been litigating for years and years was pardoned. The associate was not pardoned. So I think the guy driving the truck did not <laughs> – did, did, he, he went to Leavenworth for a bit. Imagine that for driving a milk truck. But the president actually got a pardon, which we have a copy of in our videos. The best part is he was a staunch Republican. He put the pardon on the bathroom wall of his men's club. That's much he thought of Roosevelt. <laughs> Great. So there are plenty of cases in the book that listeners will recognize. Marbury versus Madison, Brown versus Board of Education, Roe v. Wade. What are some of the lesser known but equally important cases that, that you guys highlight? We include two cases that I think every single common law casebook excludes. And they're known as the legal tender cases. Uh, all of you listening now, take a dollar bill out of your wallet. I'll wait. <laughs> okay. If you look at the dollar bill, you'll notice that there's this mark that says this is legal tender. What is legal tender? Legal tender means that people are required to accept this paper money. The fact that we have legal tender is not a given. We historically had monetary value in metal, gold, silver pieces, whatever. In fact, the phrase dollar um, at the time the framing referred to a silver coin that the Spanish created. It was a silver dollar. In the 1860s after the Civil War, the Supreme Court heard two cases back to back. Um, in the first case, the court narrowly ruled that a legal tender requirement was unconstitutional. The opinion was written by Chief Justice Salmon Chase. And, and, and Chase had actually been the Secretary of the Treasury who authorized the Legal Tender Act in the first place. <laughs> so Chase, as Secretary, said yes, legal tender, as Chief Justice said no legal tender. And he had a four to three majority. But then we had two new justices appointed to the court who favored paper money. And basically a year later, the court reversed itself and ruled that paper money now was valid, that Congress could require people to accept it. As a result, we now have paper money. Uh, but the decision was important not just for the period but also for implied powers. The sort of implied powers required to have legal tender are quite broad. And those decisions basically provided a preview of the New Deal cases like Wickard v. Filburn where the court relied on broad implied powers to regulate local commerce. Uh, so this was a very significant decision that most people simply ignore. So chapters cover federalism, due process, freedom of speech, sex and race discrimination, among uh, other topics. But one area that you don't cover is criminal law. So why did you decide not to include it? And is it perhaps because there's a companion in the works? Oh, you're giving me more work, Elizabeth. <laughs> We made some tough cuts. We did not include 
case on voting rights or districting. We did not include death penalty. We did not include criminal procedure. And the answer is perhaps not very compelling why. That's not our expertise. Usually most law schools, criminal procedure cases like Miranda are taught in a separate class, not in con law. Uh, so that wasn't our expertise to bring. And we had to make some tough cuts. Uh, although I, I don't tell Randy, but at some point we may have to expand this uh, beyond 100. I haven't quite persuaded him yet, but I think we'll, <laughs> we'll possibly get there. Uh, but there are a lot of very important crimpro cases. In fact, most of the early uh, cases from the 50s and 60s were crimpro. Those are the big cases of incorporation that 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 we allude to, but don't talk about too much. So, of the thousands of decisions the Supreme Court has issued, how did you decide uh, what make, made the cut? This was a hard question. Uh, we start with what we think is a constitutional canon, uh, which is a phrase that's often used. Right? What are the cases that everyone should know? That's that's where our title derives from. Uh, we did a survey, not scientific, but but fairly thorough, of the leading con law case books, and we checked what cases are they including, and what cases are they not including, and we tried to pick books that appeared in a majority of all the case books, and that wasn't hard. Uh, we have a couple outliers that we personally like, the legal tender cases, for example, <laughs> but we focus on the cases that every book should include. And if you compare most books, we have between 70 and 60 and 80 percent in the ballpark of the cases you'll find. So any law student who's taking any con law class can use our book as a supplement. Or even if you're not a law student, this is a very good book for people who took con law years ago and want a refresher. Or also for college students taking a con law class or high school students in AP government. Uh, the AP exam has 15 cases all high school kids should know. We have nine of them. So we have a very good overlap. Uh, and also homeschoolers. You can actually use our book in the video libraries of self-paced course to teach your students about common law. So I think the homeschool market will very much appreciate this book. So now where can people get a copy of the book? Uh, it's on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. Uh, you can buy just the videos. Um, our website, conlaw.us, gives you the easy way to do it. Uh, but this this book is readily available. Uh, it's actually bit too popular. Um, <laughs> our publisher did not print enough copies, and it was sold out for most of October. Uh, it's actually sold out at the moment for another week, but I understand more coming into Amazon. Uh, we're already well into the second printing. The books are, are only in its second month. We have not yet had adoption, so the book is selling uh, much faster than our publisher expected. Uh, that pays for what I expected, uh, but it's doing very well, and I'm, I'm grateful people are, are, are appreciating it. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, and I hope Tiffany gets the trivia questions right, because I understand the trivia questions are based on our book. So, Tiffany, good luck. <laughs> we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, 100 Cases Everyone Should Know edition. So these oh. come from Josh and Randy Barnett's new book. Oh, goodness. I'm terrible with case names. Yeah, we'll see how you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. First question. Most people have heard of Dred Scott versus Sanford, the 1857 ruling uh, that people of African heritage could not be U.S. citizens. But this earlier case upheld the constitutionality of the Fugitive Slave Act. Oh, I have no idea what the case name is. Okay. Do you know what state it was from? Um, I'll give you partial credit if you can give me that. Okay. But it's from an actual state and not a territory? Yes. Okay. Um, I feel like South Carolina because there's a lot of crazy stuff out of there. Yeah, not a bad guess. Um, it's Prigg versus Pennsylvania, 1842, oh. and the Supreme Court upheld the Fugitive Slave Act as constitutional and um, said that it superseded any state laws to the contrary. Okay, not off to a great start. 
Second question. <laughs> the slaughterhouse cases are another relatively well-known ruling uh, that basically foreclose the Privileges or Immunities Clause as a way to vindicate unenumerated rights, such as the right to pursue a lawful op- occupation. The day after the court announced the Slaughterhouse Cases ruling, um, it, it announced a, a ruling in a second Privileges or Immunities case, asking the court, uh, the issue there was asking the court to hold that the Privileges or Immunities Clause protected women as well as men. Oh. Um. Does it start with a B? It does. I'm trying to. It does. Like, and if you can tell me what it like, anything about the facts or anything like that, I'll give you credit. Was this the lawyer? The woman wanted to be a lawyer. Yes. Um, okay, I think that's the statement led her. Yes. Okay. Bradwell versus Illinois. Bradwell. Yes. 1873, holding that a female attorney did not have a constitutional right to exercise her trade as a lawyer. The state bar had denied her admission. Okay. Third question. Yes. Uh, what are the pair of cases challenge, challenging affirmative action that the court decided on the same day? Oh, Gratz and Grutter out of Michigan. You should know that. You're from Michigan. Uh, so Jennifer Gratz won her case against the university for its blatant use of race and admissions as part of a points system, whereas Barbara Grutter lost her case against the law school because it only used race as a plus factor. Okay, final question. In this case involving due process protection of personal liberty— a state argued that it could criminalize teaching young children alien speech, such as German, French, and Italian, as a matter of public safety. Oh, I vaguely remember this case. <laughs> but I don't, is it a German last name? Like a... Eh, yeah. Okay. Against a state. I don't remember. Meyer versus Nebraska. Okay. 1923. The court sided with um, Robert May, uh, Mayer, Meyer who was jailed for teaching uh, German Bible stories at a private Lutheran school, finding the state law interfered with the liberty of the teacher, the students, and the parents. All right. Well, those were hard. I get credit for a couple of them. And I think that you should blame Josh Blackman and Randy Barnett because they came from his book. Okay. Happy to (laughs) blame them. Well, before we wrap things up, I want to mention we are still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. You can get them at shop.heritage.org, and we are offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. I love free shipping. Enter four bananas, that's all one word, the number four, and bananas at checkout to get your discount. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. I mean it. Please leave us a rating. Follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.